0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Jadim Sulongkumar, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Dr. Travis Proctor to talk about his book, Demonic Bodies and the Dark Ecologies of Christian Culture. Now, I think for me personally, this book, the title of the book itself got my attention. In that sense, uh, my personal work is also hinges on Christianity and its interaction with different uh, non-human entities. So I think this book also talks about the Christian construction of a body and how it relates to the, the demonic uh, realm in that sense. So I think this is a very interesting book in that sense. And those for those listeners who are interested in this kind of area where we talk about the different constructions of body and specifically on the Christian construction of body will be very interested in this discussion. So without much ado, let me go straight to the author himself and ask something about the author. So uh, Dr. Travis, can you tell us something about yourself?
0: Yeah, sure. So Travis Proctor, I, I teach right now at Wittenberg University in Springfield, Ohio, and I teach mostly about Christian history and biblical studies but I've long been interested in things like demons and early Christianity and the body. Uh, and it's just something that's, that's kind of always fascinated me. And um, similar to you, Tia um got interested in this in part because of connections that I saw with other cultures. And so thinking about how Christianity related to say Greco-Roman polytheism and Greco-Roman cultures or ancient Judaism, and sometimes seeing either the similarities or differences really got me thinking about how are these cultures thinking about the body in general, but also about, say things like demons and so i've always been you know something kind of personal about me is just that i've always long been fascinated at with religion as a cultural construct and both how it's shaped but also how it shapes cultures and for me thinking about demons and bodies uh, is just kind of one avenue to to think some more about in this case how ancient religion shaped the cultures around it
1: Yes, um, very interesting. And in that sense, uh, the understanding of Christian body uh, body in the same sense of philosophically and theologically in present day sense has a lot of development in that sense. But you focus on certain part of the history uh, of the Christian construction of the body. So uh, why um, this work? How How did you come to this um, part of the work, right? How did you come uh, to be interested in this area and also why this certain time frame that you take? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question. I think one part of it would be that I've, I've long been fascinated by just how diverse Christianity is in this early period. The first 300 years or so before Christianity really has a solidified institutional shape, where it takes on what you can recognize as kind of a coherent institutionalized positions on you know major issues like christology or other aspects of theology and so we just have a wide range of of christian communities and cultures in this period so it always fascinated me to compare and contrast what christianity looks like at this time and i certainly found this with demons and so again what first got me interested in the topic specifically of demons was one quickly realizing as i read early christian literature how important demons were to how christians thought about the world Sometimes we're as kind of modern thinkers that often live in, in societies that are kind of disenchanted or don't really give much credence to things like angels or demons. We sometimes dismiss that in our scholarship. We don't think of them as central components. But I wanted to, I, I noticed really quickly how in early Christianity these these entities like angels and demons were so central to how, Christians constructed their culture. But then what really drove the project was uh, picking up on a couple of case studies early on where I noticed just how diverse they were, that Christians were saying really different things about demons in general, but all in, in this case, the demonic body, which is what the book ended up being about. And so I want to understand why is it that Christians are saying such different things about the demonic body? What's kind of informing that? And ultimately the book tries to argue that it's intimately related to other things that Christians are really concerned about, whether that be proper ritual relations to other religious traditions or cultic traditions or other issues having to do with the body. So things like gender, disability. Uh, so So I argue ultimately that part of the reason they're disagreeing about these things or portraying the demonic body in different ways is because it's related to these larger issues that are really shaping Christian culture at the time.
1: Yes. And uh, one of the word that is often used here is like the um, the, the non-human entities or the persons. So in the work of uh, new animism by Graham Harvey and all those, uh, we usually use this word called uh, non-human persons like that, right? And in my work, also I personally use that word uh, non-human person. So. Uh, it's it's quite interesting as to how you uh, portray this uh, you know demonic realm or entities as a new non-human in this in that sense. So uh, what what is the kind of framework that you are tr- uh, using in terms of trying to understand this whole narrative in that sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think that's an important part of the book and where I, where I see the book making a contribution to fields outside of early Christian studies. So I originally got to thinking about specifically the body through the lens of gender studies. And so that's kind of what part of my early training was in graduate school and got me interested in things like cultural constructions of the body. Uh, but one thing that became apparent to me is that much of our attention to cultural or social constructions of the body was pretty anthropocentric. We were mostly interested in how humans were navigating this issue or how they were articulating the bodies of other humans or performing human identity. And what, again, what I realized, you know, somewhat quickly in my studies is just how important non-human entities were, including for the construction of things like gender, disability, or other aspects of the body. Uh, and so that got me interested what would it look like to do a study of the early Christian body that really put front and center the non-human, so non-human entities that, that were kind of taking shape. And how we're shaping Christian culture. So some of my work here is influenced by uh, Ellen Muehlberger, who's at the University of Michigan, who has done this with regard to angels in, in late ancient Christianity, and thinking specifically about how kind of they kind of do cultural work, uh, even if you know they're kind of part of what we think of as like the supernatural sphere. Nonetheless, they're really kind of functioning within human culture to, to shape it and to shape human practice. This is my work here is also informed by you know recent trends both in you know what's known as the environmental humanities but also what's come to be called post-humanism. And so again, trying to decenter the human in our study of kind of our world more generally, but including even when it comes to human culture of thinking about what are the non-human entities, whether that be material objects, material culture, whether that be animals, whether it be, you know, things like like religious things, like um, angels or demons, so-called supernatural entities. So my work is influenced by those. And I try to use those frameworks to try to show how uh, using these theoretical frameworks to think about the non human in early Christianity kind of kind of open up new insights and vice versa. Hopefully kind of this case study in early Christianity can show how religious cultures can be interesting kind of parts of that conversation when it comes to the non human and kind of our, our broader studies of, of human culture.
1: Yeah. I think that's a very good perspective that, and that you're taught taking right uh, so coming to the chapters um, there are actually uh, five chapters in this book uh, one of the chapter talks about the second gospel that is the gospel of mark and then the other four chapters talks about it, some of the early uh, christian monumental early christian thinkers so uh, coming to the first chapter and also here i think one of the things that uh, got me interested was when you talk about the uh, uh, second temple jewish demonologists and its relation to how uh, to the Bible itself, right, and uh, how in a certain part of the Bible we can find this certain form of relations to the Second Temple Jewish terminology. So wh- what are some of the relations that we can find in the Bible, yeah? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you. And it's an important insight of that that first chapter on the Gospel of Mark is for for a long time, of course, New Testament scholars have noted that ancient Judaism forms a really important kind of piece of the culture that produces what we call the New Testament Gospels, even though we refer to them as Christian Gospels. They're, of course, really coming from ancient Jewish milieus. Uh, the communities we call Christianity are still Jewish uh, in the fullest sense of that term when these gospels are being being produced. So that's just that's an important insight that I, you know that certainly not new from my work. That's been around for a long time. But I think what the chapter does try to say is that at least in terms of its demonology, I don't think scholars had really taken that seriously and attempted a reading of New Testament gospels that really kind of thoroughly incorporated ideas about ancient Jewish demonologies into our reading and our understanding of those Gospels. And through the lens of the demonic body, that's what that chapter was trying to do, is to say, if we take it seriously, this is a book coming from an ancient Second Temple Jewish milieu. How does that kind of shape how we might read its demonology? And I think there's some aspects that maybe we miss if we don't have that that lens. And so the main thing I talked about that chapter was the, the idea that demons are actually these kind of residual souls of giants who had perished way back in the time of Noah, during the flood that you know comes after, um, after God sends the flood in the time of Noah. Um, and this is a theory that was alive and well within ancient Judaism, was very popular among early Christian writers, but again, hasn't really been used to kind of read the stories of the New Testament Gospels. And that's what I did with the Gospel of Mark was to try to show the insights that it could show into where these stories are coming from, maybe how they would have made sense to their earliest readers and what they could kind of tell us about kind of demons at the center of these stories. Um, so one thing I tried to show is that it's, it's important not only for kind of seeing why demons are important, but here I tried to show how it's actually very important for the Gospel of Mark's portrayal of uh, Jesus as an exorcist. Of course, that's an important part of Jesus's identity in the Gospel is that he exorcises demons. And so I want to point out, OK, but what what are these demons like and why might they be important to show Jesus doing this? So I argue ultimately that demons are a kind of like disabled entity. They're an entity that have like lost their body and, you know, in this uh, because of their cosmic past, but that Jesus is presented as this very powerful exorcist that is helping to get rid of this, of this entity uh, from the kind of society that Jesus is wanting to cure. And so that demons are actually a really important part of kind of portraying him as, as being kind of uh, empowered uh, with kind of uh, the Holy Spirit or with the divine spirit. And so they actually end up being an important part of of the gospel's Christology.
1: Yeah, and one of the mm, things that comes out very prominently in the chapter, uh, at least to me, is also about the very uh, porosity of uh, Jesus' body and how you know, exorcism act as a demarcator for the Jewish and non-Jewish uh, part of the Jesus movement and all those aspects. So somehow a certain form of Christological discussion is also going on here. So, uh, so in in Gospel of Mark, so how how do we understand the porosity of Jesus's body and his uh, you know uh, his exercise of exorcism in that sense? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And I think that's a that's where my chapter has been a little bit on the work of Canada Moss who has argued that the Gospel of Mark presents a rather porous Jesus. And I, I really think, I find her reading compelling. And one, one area where she points this out uh, has to do with the woman who touches the robe of Jesus, and Jesus' power just kind of flows out of him into the woman to heal her. This is a hemorrhaging woman who uh, who gets this kind of unintentional miracle from Jesus. Um, and so what I, what I connect that to and what, what Moss connects that to is portrayals of gender in the ancient world, and that oftentimes being porous was something that was gendered, as non-masculine as feminine and of course this might be a problem for somebody who is attempting to be a kind of male religious figure like Jesus was or like his followers wanted to portray him as so then what I explore is kind of okay we have this portrayal of Jesus as this kind of porous body in the Gospel of Mark but I but I note that through the exorcisms as well as other aspects of the narrative the Gospel of Mark, Mark takes pains to kind of shore up Jesus's masculinity by portraying him as this kind of all-powerful kind of almost militaristic exerciser of demons and so this is where i get into uh the the accusation that jesus is possessed by beelzebub and jesus kind of presents himself as this like military commander that's going to cast out beelzebub or satan uh, and so through that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show that demons actually end up playing an important part of how mark is negotiating the god or sorry the gender of jesus within the gospel there are some aspects of jesus's character that might kind of make him vulnerable to charges of non-masculinity, I think Mark is trying to kind of shore up Jesus's masculinity in part through these exorcism stories to kind of make Jesus seem like or appear to be this this kind of masculine and powerful prophet.
1: And now from here, that is how now from the Gospel of Mark to you turn into the uh, some of the early Christian thinkers and uh, one of it one of it here is the Ignatius of Antioch and also in this chapter you also contrast uh, the Ignatius uh, view to the Coptic uh, Apocalypse of Peter now you contrast uh, Part of their views in terms of trying to understand jesus's body in terms of resurrection and also at the same time in terms of uh you know the the demonologies in the early form of christianity so what are their this their thoughts on this ignatius and the apocalypse of bitter yeah
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was one of the most kind of fascinating comparisons that I conducted or that I just encountered in my research. And so the the thing that really sticks out about Ignatius of Antioch, this is an early Christian writer in the second century who is discussing Jesus' resurrection and claims that there's this kind of old gospel tradition that Jesus, when he's resurrected, uh, tells one of the disciples to touch me and see that I'm not a bodiless demon. And this is really different language from what we see in kind of the other gospels that we know about. Jesus never says this kind of terminology, but this just got me fascinated. Like, what does it mean to, for this kind of apocryphal tradition to say that he's not a bodiless demon? So I delve into, for Ignatius of Antioch, this is a really important part of um, him trying to show that the flesh is really important. He wants to distance Jesus from uh, uh, any charges that he didn't have a body. So it's a common early Christian idea uh, in this period to think that, well, Jesus was so divine, he, did, he just didn't have even any, even any kind of human body at all or he had some kind of special body that was kind of superhuman. Ignatius doesn't like that idea. He really wants to emphasize he had a fully human, fully fleshly body. And he uses demons as kind of like a foil to prove that he's saying, look, Jesus isn't like these demons that don't have bodies. Jesus, in fact, was kind of fully human, even though he was divine. Uh, And so Ignatius is kind of using demons and ideas about their bodies here, in this case, the idea that they don't have a body to underscore this important theological point that he's trying to make. But then what I noted in another text, uh, the Coptic Apocalypse of Peter, sometimes called a Gnostic text, even though that term is kind of controversial these days, has similar terminology, but actually goes in kind of an opposite the opposite direction. It also is interested in using demons to think about the nature of Jesus, but it goes in a completely opposite direction. It claims that the fleshly Jesus uh, would be something like a demonic entity, and it claims that, um, that, in fact, the kind of bodiless Jesus is kind of the important one and the one who is kind of the divine Jesus. So here it kind of has a very different understanding about uh, both the body and demons. Here, being embodied as actually a bad thing, having flesh is a bad thing. In fact, it's characterized by its demonic nature. And so the Coptic Apocalypse of Peter wants to distance Jesus from the flesh and what he calls kind of the demonic kind of body. So here you have kind of two two early Christian uh, writings, probably not too distant from each other in date, within a century of each other probably. Who take completely opposite approaches to the demonic body but interestingly they're both using it to kind of underscore points about what jesus was like so it's actually kind of towards the same project but they have just completely different viewpoints on on what that would be so for me that that chapter really underscored the diversity both of course of demonic bodies or lack of bodies in this early christian period but also really underscored how these debates were connected up with other issues And in this chapter i traced how they were connected to these ideas about specifically about the body of Jesus.
1: Yeah. And, you know, moving a little bit away from the chapter itself, and I'm sure you you might have dealt on these issues in that sense. So today, at least one of the very prominent view about uh, Jesus' body in terms of his resurrection is the corporality of the Jesus' body, that Jesus had a body in that sense. So in in this chapter also, you talk about the docetism, the kind of uh, heretical movement and all of those aspects. So, how, why do you think that the, the, the kind of prominence about Jesus being having a body got its prominence in that sense, or you know, got the attraction in, in the movement and then you know, got the philosophical or theological prominence today? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a great question. My chapter delves into this just a little bit to look at how ear- our earliest portrayals of Jesus' kind of resurrection body are pretty ambiguous. You know, we have stories like in the Gospel of John of Jesus, you know, entering rooms that had locked doors. You know, how does he do that? Or encountering disciples and the disciples don't recognize who he is. You know, like, what, what what's that about? Um, and so early on, it's rather ambiguous. Like, what kind of body did Jesus really have after he was resurrected, according to, to early Christians and early early Jesus followers? But then, like I said, we have this debate that really springs up, in, especially in the second and third centuries, where Christians are really debating about whether Jesus had some kind of fleshly body or didn't have any kind of body at all. And they they both seem to be trying to emphasize Jesus' potency or his power, but doing so in very different ways. For some, it's that he became fully human. That's really what makes him so distinctive. He was a divine person that became fully human. For other Christians, it's like, no, what's so distinctive is just how powerful a divinity he is. And even if he didn't become fully human, in fact, he probably couldn't because he was so powerful of a divinity. I mean, I think, you know, asking maybe why that, let's see, former position really became the prominent one in christianity you know the emphasis on the flesh i think that, that's such a fascinating question one that probably would take me quite a while to try to unpack because i think it probably gets into you know historical accidents and the various kind of like cultural and social kind of movements that end up shaping christianity especially as it becomes a more powerful entity in say the third and the fourth centuries of in in the mediterranean so it's kind of hard to say why did that specific vision went out i think um you know, we do start to see it kind of gaining, kind of becoming clear, the majority position. Maybe by the third century is where it's it's pretty clear that it's starting to kind of gain uh, more institutionalized support, and the other positions are maybe waning or dying out a bit. So I think it's hard to say why that happened. I think um, maybe, maybe there's some theological reasons behind it, but I think for my book, it's just important to point out that even if that becomes the kind of most prominent way of thinking about Jesus' body. It's not clear that it's. It's certainly not the case that that was always or consistently the way that Christians thought about the body of Jesus, especially in post-resurrection. That in fact there was quite a bit of diversity and quite a bit of bit of disagreement in this earlier period.
1: Yes and that is where we come to the second christian uh, thinker heard and that is Just, justin martyr and here you talk about justin martyr's view of the polymorphic understanding of uh, demonic bodies and where how uh, that is where you know how the proper form of christian exorcism also emerges in that sense so so wh- wh- what is this justin martyr's polymorphic view of demonic bodies yeah
0: mm-hmm yeah i think this is a, a chapter that was really fun to write in part because justin was the author that first got me thinking about demons so this is way back in undergraduate where i, I think i just happened to pick up a copy of justin's uh, first apology and the thing that struck me about it was just how much how often demons were showing up it seemed like almost every kind of argument that that justin was making was citing demons in some way or at least it seemed to me that way at the time so it first got me thinking about how important demons were for early christian authors was really through justin so it's fun to return to him and, and think about demons some more with his work. I think the, the big thing that I point out there is that distinctively, Justin really emphasizes how demons can change forms. This is something we do see in, say, Greco-Roman literature, the idea that daimones or other types of spirits could maybe change forms, uh, or the idea that maybe angels could change forms we see in other literature. But Justin really emphasizes that something has to do with demons. And what's interesting is that he connects this to their ability to trick people, namely to trick people into doing bad religion, in his view, you know, doing Greco-Roman worship or what have you. He says, well, those are just demons who have tricked them by taking on the forms of what look like divinities. But he also says it's it's kind of created, again, what he might call bad religion by uh, inspiring things like magical practices. So, again, kind of tricking people by uh, making it look like you're all powerful but you're really not you're just kind of tricking them demons are kind of behind this and what's behind that well it's their ability to change shape being able to change shape being polymorphic as i call it is really what's at the root of them being able to carry out these practices uh and so this is something we see in in other pieces of ancient literature but it's something that justin really kind of distinctively attributes uh, to the demonic body specifically Mm,
1: yeah so now, coming to the next early thinker, that is the Clement of Alexandria, and this is where you talk about, uh, you know, Clement's view of Greco uh, Roman rituals in terms of the sacrificial rituals, and that is where you also come to sacrifice and its uh, demonization uh, by Christians. So, what is uh, Clement's view, in the sense Clement of Alexandria's view here, in terms of uh, rituals and then the demonic aspect of it?
0: Yeah. Well, I think Clement's uh, one thing I'll just start out with um, is that I think Clement's a really kind of interesting case study among early Christian authors. I think he's significant, uh, even people outside of Christian studies for a couple of reasons. One, he's one of our earliest, what we might call like proto vegetarians. He makes really strong arguments for not eating meat as part of kind of being a pious Christian. And I'll get into that here pretty soon. But then as part of this also is that he makes uh, he's one of our earliest Christian authors to really articulate uh, kind of an anti-sacrifice position. And we we take it for granted, I think today, but it was actually really odd that Christianity among ancient Mediterranean religions did not sacrifice animals. You know, ancient Judaism, most ancient Greco-Roman cults had animal sacrifice as one of their central activities, but Christianity did not. At least, you know, um, at least the majority of Christians did, and we have some evidence for some, you know, for in some places or some writings. So Clement's one of the first to really lay out you might call like a theology of saying why Christians don't do animal sacrifice and this is also part of his argument for why Christians shouldn't eat meat because they're related. You know, you get your meat in part through sacrificing animals to gods. Well, Clement says oh, you need to avoid all that stuff because demons are kind of involved the whole way. Uh, according to him, it's similar to Justin. He argues that demons are kind of behind the Roman gods. They're tricking people into worshiping them. And he says, the reason why they do that is because they really like that animal sacrifice because all the blood and the smoke and the fumes that come from it, according to Clement, they're kind of like food for the demons and they eat this stuff up. And so what's what's interesting to me about this is, you know, this is in complete contrast to other Christian authors that I look at, uh, is that Clement really portrays the demon as fattened. It's kind of this grotesque fattened entity. It's definitely not the bodiless entity that we saw in Ignatius of Antioch. And in fact, it seems like a very material entity uh, in Clement's portrayal. But it's all because it's part of this broader argument that he's making about uh, sacrificial meat and and meat more generally as well. That he really thinks Christians shouldn't eat it because he thinks that's you know it's not the pious thing to do. Uh, but demons play play an important part in this and kind of a literal demonization of of sacrifice and of meat, which Clement feels is really important for them to for to carry out proper Christian practice. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, and. I think this is where we now turn to the Tertullian of Carthage. Now, I think uh, this is where you talk about Tertullian's view of entanglement of human body with non-human uh, counterparts. So uh, how does this uh, Tertullian's entanglement work out? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Tertullian's this you know, Latin uh, Christian author who we have these writings from that he, you know, he's, he's been really a focus uh, of early Christian studies for a long time especially with his views regarding gender. And so it's long been noted that he has a pretty restrictive idea of, say, what women should do or how men should behave. Uh, So I wanna look at this on how uh, demons specifically kind of um, functioned in Tertullian's thought when it came to things like gender. And really what I argue is that Tertullian, or demons emerge in Tertullian's writings as a kind of an abject entity uh, that is, and this is using, uh, you know, gender studies scholarship and psychoanalytic scholarship uh, such as Kristeva, but also Judith Butler. Uh, To argue and point out that Tertullian really thinks that humans, whenever they start out, oftentimes he, he claims they have demons attached to them because they haven't been baptized in Christianity. But whenever they do get baptized, that that demon gets expelled. So in order to become a true Christian, you have to be baptized to kind of get that demon to be rid of that demon. So that's the way in which I argue it's an abject entity. It's something that's kind of cast out of you in order to become kind of the true Christian self. But for Tertullian, kind of as you, as you read his writings, he's clearly really, really worried about that abject entity, that demon kind of coming back to the Christian and either kind of infesting them somehow or taking them over through possession. And he tells a lot of stories of uh, Christians who have done something really wrong and been attacked by demons or been possessed by demons. Uh, he's really not a big fan, for example, of Roman entertainment spectacles. So he says, you know, hey, don't go to those wrestling matches. Don't go to the gladiator matches. He says, don't even go horseback riding, actually, in one of the more humorous parts of his his writing. He says, because all these ceremonies, all these activities have in some way, because of Roman culture, been kind of infected by demons. And therefore, if you go do anything that's kind of associated with Greco-Roman culture, you know, non-Christian culture, then you run the risk of getting um, inhabited by demons. And so he tells these stories to um, to really um, hammer home that, you know, you can't be doing these things without getting infected. Where I where I saw that as being important, where I think it becomes kind of entangled with the human body, it's not only the sense that, you know, Tertullian thinks that from the beginning, demons are kind of entangled with non-Christians, but also it becomes entangled in the sense that it informs Christian performance. And so, of course, Tertullian is really kind of mapping out a you know, pretty restrictive you know, prescriptive program here of how Christians should behave. Don't go to the shows. Don't go to gladiator shows. Don't kind of do anything kind of the non-Christian activity. Well, as that would have been enacted or maybe, you know, maybe resisted by a lot of Tertullian's readers that would have shaped how Christians behaved. So how their actual bodies kind of materialized within Christian culture. So I wanted to show how, even, even if we might think of demons as kind of this imaginary thing or this supernatural entity it really becomes such a, such a big part of Christian culture because it informs how people think about articulate, but also perform their own kind of embodiment. And for Tertullian that, you know, has to do with Roman culture and demonization of, of Roman cultural activities. Uh, But I think that's really more widely applicable to early Christian culture in general, is that demons really came to shape, shape how the body, the human body took shape, and therefore became kind of entangled with it in that broader sense.
1: Yeah, I, I think all of these um, different views in that sense um, brings out a very variety of, uh, you know, thinking about this uh, very aspect of a Christian understanding of the body. And, you know, in my work also I've seen that, you know, I've noticed in the part of India where, northeast part of India where I'm doing my work, you know, uh, the Christians understand body as something which can be infected by the demon, right? Uh, But then also at the same time, if that that Christian or that someone has the Holy Spirit in him or her, then uh, that with that kind of power, right, that kind of infestation by the demon can also be removed in that sense. So that is a very good, interesting, uh, I mean, the way you are, uh, you know, trying to explain the... Thoughts, uh, different thoughts here. I think that brings out the variety of uh, you know, thoughts in trying to think about Christian uh, construction of the body. And I think that that is a very interesting contribution of the book in that sense, where it can also show that, it, you know, in today's context, there can be different understanding of the body and how people construct the body from their own perspective and lens and understanding. So, this is where in your book uh, you say that, you know, demonologies in early Christianity reflect the transcorporal entanglement of human body. I think one of the things that I want to ask here is that. In today's context, right, looking at all the historical thoughts and also looking at the gospel of Mark, what can be the takeaway or what can we really understand from these uh, different forms of thoughts about the Christian body from the, your work itself? Yeah, Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I, I really see it. Uh informing contemporary scholarship even outside of christian studies or you know more broadly kind of society in general in really two ways one would be one thinking about our social constructions of things like gender but also disability or race or ethnicity i think we've had such rich scholarship exploring that but i think one underdeveloped part of that is thinking about how the non-human plays an important role in that so i think it emerges as an important case study in just thinking about how are non-humanities, and maybe that's material culture, animals, maybe that's the environment, how do they play a role in how the human body takes shape? But then also, I think building on that, uh, thinking about the environment especially, is this broader conversation, especially with the environmental humanities, of how exactly humanity is or does relate to the environment that's around it. Uh, And one major push within the environmental humanities and among environmental ethicists is to try to argue that In fact, we should come to see our body as more kind of intimately connected to our environment. And if perhaps we did that, that could inform a kind of more robust ethics. If we kind of saw ourselves as connected with our local environments, perhaps we would care a little bit more to think about uh, how to treat them properly or how to live a little bit uh, in a little bit better kind of balance or harmony or what have you with those environments. So there's been a really robust interest in thinking about uh, how to connect humans with kind of non-human environments. Well, my work tries to kind of take that and think about that historically well historically how have different societies and cultures thought about the human connection to non-human environments and so my book demonic bodies was trying to really think about that specifically of especially looking at in this case an ancient early christian culture how did they think about how the human related to their non-human environment um i you know importantly i think it, it helps trace out well they they thought of it as pretty interconnected or at least you know mutually informing each other in those ways one important corrective that, that I did want to introduce with the book and that I tried to map out in the intro and in the conclusion, especially, is to say, but one important caveat to that is that oftentimes people imagine themselves as interconnected, but in rather harmful ways. You know, we can think about, you know, uh, Christians certainly thought of themselves as interconnected with demonic bodies in, in various ways, and but they didn't necessarily see that as a good thing. They actually saw that as a pretty bad thing, that demons could inhabit them or attack them or, or what have you. Or the ways that they shape their bodies were kind of bad way, you know, bad um, ways of, of shaping uh, Christian identity and embodiment. So I, I do think that's an important corrective uh, for the environmental humanities. And here I'm, I'm building a little bit on the work of, say, Lisa Sedaris. It was noted that too often our environmental ethics have been built on ideas of interconnections with the environment that are kind of purely benevolent. Are purely benign maybe that are kind of only kind of positive understandings of our relations with the environment, instead of seeing it as a, you know, complex, sometimes harmful relations with non-human things. Uh, so one thing that um, my book is trying to do is provide an historical case study that perhaps could, could just help us think a little bit more about uh, especially kind of contemporary environmental ethics. And so one one thing the book is arguing is that we could come to see the ancient Christian body as what I call kind of a pre-human, you know, kind of it's, it's oftentimes common today to encounter post-humanist strands of thought within environmental humanities and environmental ethics. I'm trying to argue that actually we kind of have this prehistoric, you know, this kind of ancient history where humans also were kind of seeing their bodies as entangled with the environment in some way. And that's, that's, I think that should be an important part of, of our discussion surrounding these issues.
1: Yes, that's uh, very fascinating as well as a very, you know, important contribution in that sense. Uh, so is there anything uh, about the book since we have come to the end of our discussion, anything about the book that I've, I mean, I've missed out, uh, which you think is important to say? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I, yeah, I think the attention you've done a great job of kind of covering, I think, a lot of the major arguments and claims I've made. I think one, one I'll just, I'll follow up on, we had talked about, um, you're asking about entanglements and shaping the body. And one thing I think that's important to point out is that even in how Christians thought demons could interact with the body, they, they were, they were different. They were diverse. And so, for example, um, the gospel of Mark seems to have an idea that demons could, you know, literally kind of invade the body and possess it. Whereas Clement of Alexandria has a little bit different understanding. He seems to be a little bit more wary of describing kind of exorcisms, but instead thinks that the human body could kind of come to mimic the demonic body. And so he's really worried about Christians kind of eating meat and becoming demon infested. And he kind of warns them. He's like, listen, if you do this, your body's going to become weighed down because the demon is so fattened and material. You're going to get weighed down too. And you won't really be able to ascend and rise up like you want to do. Like you want to, you know, you want to get to heaven. You want to be one with the divine. You need to be light. And so that's just one example of, I think even in that kind of basic thing of like, how do demons relate to um, uh, relate to the body. Uh, early Christians uh, had had diverse ideas on this, and I think it's important because that's one. That's one thing that I encounter. Kind of a, I don't know if it's a stereotype or a caricature of early Christianity when it comes to say possession is thinking that early Christians had this idea about demonic possession, and that was maybe kind of the only way they thought about healthcare, the only way they diagnosed uh, certain types of um, maladies or what have you in the ancient world. But in fact, early Christians had really diverse ideas about. Um, either what made you sick or, uh, how demons could relate to you and your body or make you, or, um, you know, hurt you or things like that. So just that kind of underscoring the diversity of Christian viewpoints on that is, is something I'd, I'd emphasize.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. So is there any project that is coming ahead of you or is there anything that you are working on as of now? Yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking this work and I'm, I'm really taking it two separate directions, kind of two distinct projects. One is I'm, I'm going more into the, envir- the idea of environmental humanities and especially environmental history. So I'm conducting a multi-part project. It's already appeared in a few articles on the ancient city of Ephesus and how it both shaped and was shaped by its local environmental history. Namely, it has to deal with kind of the flooding of its local waterways that are really impacting the city's history. But at the same time that all these environmental issues are happening, it's also shifting from greco Roman polytheism to Christianity as its majority tradition. So my work tries to trace how these things become intertwined, how cultural history and environmental history actually are really overlapping and informing each other in in interesting ways. So I'm, I'm extending that work in environmental history and the environmental humanities, but I'm also still thinking quite a bit about the body. And so specifically in the non-human body, especially. Uh, and so I have a project on how early Christians used non-human entities to think about or uh, tell stories about the body of Jesus in early Christianity. So it's kind of a study of early Christologies, but specifically through the lens of the non-human so we have lots of fascinating, sometimes kind of weird portrayals of Jesus, either as a rock or as a worm or uh, as, uh, of course, as a lamb as famously from the book of from the Gospel of John. So I want to understand why is it that Christians kind of uh, use these types of images to talk about Jesus? What did they accomplish? Why were they important for early Christian culture? And why might that be important for thinking about early Christian history? And so these two projects are, are really where I see this work kind of extending and, and hopefully continuing continuing on going forward.
1: Yes, I think a very interesting project. And so um, if people want to reach out to you regarding this uh, book, and also uh, also at the same time, you know, your future works and all, how do people reach out to your email or some social media accounts? Yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, you can get uh, contacted me by email. It's t at wittenberg.edu. I'm also on Twitter. Just search you know, Travis Proctor Wittenberg. You, you'll find me there. Also on um, uh, some of my works on academia.edu as well as humanities commons. Uh, and so I, I've shared some of the research I talked about in here and, and some other versions of my work are on there. So, yeah, I'd really love it if, if people wanted to reach out or have questions or comments. I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to hear them.
1: Yeah. And thank you so much, Dr. Travis Proctor, for being here. And to the listeners, I think this is a very interesting work in the sense of uh, looking at the diversity of Christian construction of bodies. And I think if you get hold of this work, I think it'll be a really interesting, not only an interesting read, but also at the same time, an interesting outlook at perspective to trying to understand the Christian perspective, but also at the same time, their, you know, societal construction uh, in terms of the bodies and the demons and also at at the same time, different aspects of the society as Dr. Travis Proctor also talks about in terms of gender disabilities and also the environmental humanities and all of those aspects. So thank you, Dr. Travis Proctor, for being here and yeah, have a good time ahead. Yes.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.